Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, today I have a really great interview for you that I did with Michael Tremblay. And many of you would probably remember Michael coming on the show, uh, I believe it was last year. Uh, And so we do have that interview in my archives on my Patreon site. So just head to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew and you can get access to over 200 episodes that I recorded before uh, 2020. So hopefully you go there and check that out. But if not, that's okay, because this is still such a great conversation to listen to. And we based it all around Hellenistic philosophy, uh, because you've probably heard the phrase Hellenism thrown around a lot. We've talked about it on the show. Uh, And these are basically a group of philosophies that were competing against each other during the Hellenistic period. And so I wanted to get an expert on here, somebody who really was studying the Hellenistic philosophies and somebody who could tell us, you know, what are the main rivals of Stoicism and how does Stoicism fit into this kind of landscape? And uh, so this was such a great conversation for me. It really opened my eyes to a lot of new information. And I know that it's going to give you guys a bit of a, a context for where Stoicism grew up, you know, its environment. And so I'm really excited to show you this interview, uh, but first I do want to tell you a little bit about Michael so you have some context uh, for who you're listening to. Uh, so Michael Tremblay, he's a PhD student in philosophy at Queen's University. Uh, and before going to Queen's, he actually completed a BA and MA in philosophy at Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, during his time at Carleton, he actually wrote a master's thesis on the Stoic Epictetus. Uh, His PhD work continues to examine Stoic ethics and the question of how the Stoics thought we should cultivate our virtue. Now, Michael's main interest is in ancient philosophy, uh, specifically moral education in the Stoics. Uh, He's also fascinated by the Hellenistic conception of philosophy as a way of life, uh, which is to be practiced in order to achieve virtue and happiness. He's also interested in philosophy as a skill or a craft and interested in how training and practice factor into becoming a better philosopher, uh, which is awesome, which really aligns with the whole practical stoic side of things. Uh, But beyond philosophy, uh, Michael is also a passionate uh, martial artist and he regularly competes in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and wrestling. So uh, he's living the life, he's walking the walk, you know, he's talking about philosophy, but he's also implementing it into his life, which is why I absolutely love having a conversation with Michael every time. Uh, So I'm really excited for you to listen to this and I'm going to put all of the links to where you can find Michael's stuff online and where you can follow him and make sure you get out there let him know how much you appreciated this conversation. So without any further ado, I present to you Michael Tremblay. Okay, so here we are. Michael, I'm, uh, I'm super pumped to have you as we've been talking about before the show. Um, and, you know, we've already spoken on the podcast before, but we're probably going to touch on uh, a lot of the same sort of topics. But um, just 
as a, as a little bit of a, an intro to why I wanted to have you on the show, I know you're very interested in not only stoicism, but many aspects of life, but um, also you're very knowledgeable on the Hellenistic philosophy side of things, right? Mm-hmm. And whenever I'm interviewing people or whenever I hear people talking about stoicism, the phrase is always, you know, tossed around like, oh, stoicism is a part of the Hellenistic tradition or the Hellenistic philosophies. Mm-hmm. And for those people who are just coming into stoicism, uh, I think you can kind of just gloss over it, but I'd really like to talk to you about, okay, what is this group of Hellenistic philosophies? Where did it come from? And, um, you know, how does stoicism fit in there? But um, yeah, like let, let's have a conversation about it. I'm going to let you start where you want to start. Great. Um, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah, sounds good. Um, that's such, that's just such a great topic for me because I find this all very, very interesting. Oh, so, good. Um, okay, this is going to be fun. <laughs> in terms of what Hellenistic philosophy is, so you have philosophy, which is um, feel is sophos, feel is, is love, sophos is wisdom. So philosophy is the, the love of wisdom, the pursuit of truth. I'm going to have to stop you there. That's already, if people just stop listening to the podcast, that's already enough, like, awesome value there. Like, love of wisdom, breaking philosophy down into essentially what it is. That's, that's like the best, that is the definition of philosophy. And it's the best definition of philosophy, right? Just that love of knowledge and progression. Yeah, exactly. And um, because philosophy is this, is this Greek term, right? So it starts... Mm. You have the pre-Socratic philosophers who, who, were, who were doing things pre-Socrates, but it wasn't in kind of this formalized system as this – it wasn't thought of as philosophy yet. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then Socrates comes in and then his student Plato and, and Plato in that system kind of formalizes philosophy and makes it what it is and has these divisions into like ethics and the questions of what's right and wrong metaphysics and these questions of, of what the reality is, how the world works, um, and, and these kind of basic divisions that we've kept, um, that, that happens around Plato and Socrates. So we, we see philosophy emerge, and then philosophy is now continued for 2,000 years, right? But there's, but there's so many different ways you can take philosophy, because um, it's, it's the love of wisdom. So in that way, it's the pursuit of truth. And there's mm. a lot of different kinds of truth. Um, so Hellenistic philosophy is a term given to philosophy after Aristotle and mm-hmm. before the medieval period. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's the timeline is after Aristotle and before the medieval period. So historically, you have pre-Socratic philosophers like 500, 600 BC um, mm-hmm. in Greece. Then you have Socrates, um, Plato, his student, and then Aristotle is his student. And this is kind of we, – we see the development of philosophy in, in the kind of the major schools of ethics and metaphysics and logic the mm. way we know it today. And then following Aristotle, you get Hellenistic philosophy. And Hellenistic philosophy, what separates it stylistically is it was focused on a question uh, originated by Aristotle, um, which is what is the content of happiness? So Hellenistic mm. philosophy is all unified – by trying to answer the question of what a happy or good life looks like. Hmm. So in that sense, Hellenistic philosophy is incredibly applied and incredibly practical. You know, there might be this stereotype if, if, you're, if you know, you know, Kant or Hegel or Heidegger and you're kind of like, well, what does this have to do with real life? There's this stereotype of philosophy as being esoteric or um, somehow irrelevant to, to the real world. Hmm. And Hellenistic philosophy 
I think the appeal to it is it, it doesn't really have that problem. It's incredibly focused on the real world. It's focused on how should we live um, and what's required for a good life. So mm. I don't know. Did you want to stop me or, or should I keep going there? No, I'm, I'm very interested in what you're saying there. And, and I think it's, it's okay. uh, man, there's so much potential here for us in the future to even come back mm. to all of the schools of philosophy and, 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 and the different branches, essentially. But so you could essentially say that Aristotle created Hellenistic philosophy indirectly, right? Like by, by essentially offering that question, like, like what is happiness, right? Yeah, so I would say that I would say that Hellenistic philosophy is riffing on Aristotle, right? Yeah, so okay. he kind of because Aristotle did a lot of things, right? Mm. He he if 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 all we had was Aristotle's ethics, he'd still be one of the greatest philosophers of all time. Yeah. But we have he basically invented modern biology, he invented formalized logic, he has political theory, um, he has theory about art, he has mm. all these different branches. So he did so much. Um, but but he, one of his main innovations was this ethical innovation where he, he lays it down like this and he says, look, we're interested, this is the Nicomachean ethics, if anyone wants to dig deeper into this. He said, everything is done for a reason, right? He's like, if you do anything, it's for a reason. It's like a five-year-old kid. If you ask why, you'll get the next mm. reason. You know, why do you have a job? Well, to make money. Why? Well, to buy a house. Why? Well, so I can have security for myself and my family. Why? And if you ask this question long long enough to any person, everybody gets back to the same answer, which is happiness. So mm. everything you do, if you ask why long enough, it gets back to, well, I think that will make me happy. I think that's what a good life is. So mm. Aristotle identifies this. And so he says happiness is, is the ultimate ends for humans. Everything we do eventually leads back to happiness. Yeah. And that's, and then, so he establishes that framework. And then he says, well, what, what the heck does happiness look like? This is a really important mm. question, right? Because if we're all doing it to be happy, we don't want to do the wrong things. We don't want to think happiness consists of popularity, but then we realize that celebrities, they're not very happy. And, and you know, so if you pursue popularity, it doesn't pay off. We want to know what happiness, what the content of it is. Yeah. Now, can so, I just stop yeah. you there for one second? Oh, yeah. Can we define yeah. what they meant by happiness? Because a lot of people who are listening right now might have different ideas of what happiness is. But then we look at the Stoics and their, their word, you know, eudaimonia, like, which has been roughly translated to like the flourishing life, right? Um, mm -hmm. Now, now, so did, did Aristotle mean the same thing that we mean by happiness? What did he mean? So it depends on what people mean by happiness, because if, I mean, if you haven't studied philosophy, you're getting a lot of these concepts just from television or just from conversation yeah. or media and someone yeah. just says, I'm happy or this person isn't happy. So we have this kind of um, ambiguous concept. So mm -hmm. it's helpful to flesh it out. So one thing you could mean by happiness is you could mean just the sensation. Yeah. So you could say, well, you know, I was happy yesterday because I felt good and I'm not happy today. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's, that's a common way of thinking about it. That's not the way that Aristotle or the Hellenistic philosophers are going to think of it. So the mm. term, as you pointed out, that they use is eudaimonia. And eu is, the, is, the, is a prefix which means good. Mm -hmm. Daimon is uh, the word we get demon from. It means like a guardian spirit. Mm. So it's a good spirit. So in that way, you can think of it. It's like you have a good spirit watching over you. Mm -hmm. So flourish life works, or I think of blessed life in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and 
so what, what, what differs in this conception of happiness is happiness was something that you gauged over an entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so Aristotle famously says that, you know, we can't judge if someone was happy until after they died, right? Yeah. Because if you have a good 60 years and then the last 20 years are, are terrible, well, then if you looked at your life, you wouldn't say, you know, it makes more sense if we say the term like a flourished life or a great life, we wouldn't look at that person and say, well, they had a great life. Because well maybe they had they had a good beginning but they had a really terrible ending. Yeah. So it was this it was this kind of thing you said about a totality. It was the kind of thing you said about a life overall. Mm. Um, it was also the kind of thing, and this is important, that because it's not a subjective feeling, it was the kind of things that other people could say about you, and you couldn't. So there's almost this way of saying like, you know, if you think of it as subjective, you could say well. You know, I know things are going terrible, but I'm happy. And if, if happiness is subjective, who are we to disagree? Mm. But when happiness is this kind of, it's this objective thing, people can look at you and say, no, you, you don't have a happy life because you don't meet these criteria, right? It's like uh, if you think of a stoic example, you might think of someone who's immoral and, you know, they, 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 have, a, they have a lot of money or they have a lot of um, vices that they indulge in and they say, well, you know, screw you, Stoics. Like I'm happy, even though I'm mm-hmm. even though I'm I'm doing things you disagree with. And the Stoics and, and would want to say that we're able to say no, you're not. Like we're able to say that about other people, yeah. based on whether or not they meet these objective criteria. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, I like to think of it. I say happiness as like an introduction to the term, but I I think a lot of the confusion goes away if you say a good life. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. That person had that person had a good life. And that's what we're yeah. asking the question of what does a good life look like and mm. what is required for it and what is not required for it. I'm really interested in the part of the definition that has to do with the, the kind of guiding spirit, right? Because mm-hmm. um, that's yeah, – what, what does that even mean? You know, is that like this source of rationality? You know, is that their version of God back then? Is it like, like what, what is that guiding spirit? Because – uh, it, it almost seems like it could be like the logos, which is, you know, what we're aiming at with okay. stoicism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like that, that guiding truth, essentially, that you can tap into at any time. But I don't know. What do you think? So a daimon is like a, it's like a demigod. So it's not quite God. Mm. And the reason the Stoics are using that term is they're just following Aristotle, right? Mm-hmm. So Aristotle is using that term because that's the term that normal people use. Yeah. And then everybody else follows with that term. Yeah. But it's just like um, it, it would just be like uh, it, it's not it's not the spirit of the universe. It's not God. Mm. It's just some some some. I mean, I don't know. Some so I, I wouldn't want to think of a ghost in that sense. But it's just a, it's an individualized spirit that it, that is watching over you. And, and they're individualized in this sense. So there's as mm. many as there are people. And um so daimon, you could use this kind of interchangeably with like with luck. Mm. So to have a good daimon was to have good luck. And it was this kind of explanation for why things fared well for you. Um, this outside of a philosophical context it was kind of an explanation. Well, you know, things went well for me. It was because I had a good spirit, you know, like I had yeah. a daimon um, making sure that luck turned out well for me. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of used in, the, used in a non-philosophical concept yeah. as the term. And then Aristotle and then the Stoics adopt it and, and yeah. turn it flesh, flesh it out into a full philosophical concept. 
so could could you almost say that it's uh, you could could you almost liken it to say something good happens to me and I say oh thank god you know like it's like oh thank that that little that little thing that's like watching over me from time to time you know that that yes. means my life is is good that little fate you know similar to this but it would be individualized right so if we yeah, say thank yeah, exactly. god in a christian context we think it's one god looking over yeah. all of us but it's individualized it's your your daimon yeah right but see what's interesting yeah. is uh, uh, what's interesting about the people who say oh thank god not everybody who says oh thank god you know is a christian or even believes in a god right it's just yes. like it's just something yeah. we say in western culture um, you know, yeah. the, and if you don't believe in God, then what are you saying? So it's like, okay, well, thank whatever is working towards like, not, not that yeah. anything is necessarily working necessarily, but it's like, thank whatever is just happened because I don't have to feel pain now, <laughs> you know, like, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I, th- I think it's that's an interesting ex- way. Yeah. Ex- an expression of appreciation, you know, for the way things are turning out that's and it. a recognition that you're like not fully aware of why they turned out that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like something seems to be going on beyond your grasp, but it kind of, yeah. it, it worked out anyway. Just thank, yeah. Thank God for that. Yeah. Okay, I, I cool. So that kind of speaks to the, um, the stoic view of, uh, p- potentially speaks to the stoic view of, um, you know, love your fate. It's like, look, things are going to happen mm-hmm. good or bad. Um, you know, accept the good and the bad deal with it. Um, so, so, mm-hmm. okay, cool. So, so we know how they kind of defined eudaimonia or happiness. Um, now, how do we get to Hellenistic philosophy now? And like, what, what are the main, what are the main, oh, actually, when did Hellenistic philosophy first kind of emerge? Oh boy. So my timing here would have to be specific. It would be post Aristotle. So it'd be around 300 yeah. BC. Cool. Yeah. And then we're looking, we're looking to around 300 AD. So yeah. what happens is a lot of these ideas kind of get consumed by Christianity and some yeah. of them get thrown away and some of them get incorporated. Okay. So around 300 BC, 300 AD. Yeah, awesome. And and so who who leads the charge on Hellenistic philosophy? And, and are we in Athens right now? Is this the main hub of, of Hellenistic philosophy? Yeah. So Hellenistic philosophy, um, this is just the word for Greek in Greek. Okay. Okay, so it's just, that's 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 what Hellenistic is. It's, it's Great. Greek. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of Greek philosophy, but, but it's acquired its own terms. So if you say Greek philosophy, it's ambiguous. Do you mean Plato? Do you mean Socrates? Who do you yeah. mean? So it's the Greek philosophy that emerged after Aristotle. Yeah, great. And that's, that's the term we're giving to it. Yeah. Um, and Hellenistic philosophy, this is a term we've given afterwards. But the main players, uh, it's so cool. So Aristotle does this innovative work. And then people start running with it in different directions. Mm. So the main players... I would say there's five and this is yeah. a lot, but we can see which ones we want to talk about. Yeah, there's definitely. Cynicism. Yep. So there's, there's cynicism, there's stoicism, there's skepticism, mm-hmm. there's epic epicureanism. And then there's the peripatetics and the peripatetics are the Aristotelians. Mm-hmm. They're the followers of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. So those are the five, those are the five main players and all of them have a different answer to this question of the content of a good life. Mm-hmm. Now, could you just, uh, could you just repeat for me that, that last one? So we've got cynicism, stoicism, skepticism, Epicureanism, and the last one there. It's the peri. So P R I yeah. pathetics. Yeah. Yeah. Peripathetics. Okay. Awesome. Okay, cool. So 
uh, it seems to me like the most influential in that group were probably like the the uh, the, the the cynics, the Stoics, and the Epicureans, right? Because I haven't heard a lot about like the skeptics. I haven't. Uh, yeah, I've heard a lot about the skeptics, but um, who who do you think actually who who led the charge? Like who was the first one out of the bat in in terms of like the, these philosophies? Do you know, or is it even important? <laughs> So, so I'm not sure chronologically exactly. Mm. What I know is that pre-Stoicism, you had Cynicism and Epicureanism. Yeah. So Stoicism actually actually comes from Cynicism. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Zeno of Sidium, the founder of Stoicism, he was a student of Diogenes. He was a student of a, of a cynic. So yeah. pre-Stoicism, I know you had um, you had Cynicism and Epicureanism. Yeah. Um, so those two were kind of originating, um, this kind of way of formulating it. One of the reasons we don't see, you don't hear a lot about, um, the skeptics is, I mean, we can talk about that more, but it's just because they didn't really have people, people want an answer, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, the people are searching for this truth. And the, the skeptic position was that we should refrain from false judgments. Yeah. So it says, look, we don't know, so we shouldn't, it's better to, it's like agnosticism, right? Yeah, yeah. It's better to not know, admit you don't know, than to believe the wrong thing. And mm. they would, the, the, the skeptics would kind of point to like, look, the Christians don't know. This is they, they wouldn't talk about this in this way, but in, in a modern context, they would say, look, mm-hmm. the, the religious people don't know. But the atheists don't know either. You don't know. You know. You don't know yeah. anyway. You have to be agnostic about it. Um, and so that was a position, but it's just not one that's very. I don't think it's very inspiring in the same way reading about Stoicism or Epicureanism mm. um, or Cynicism can be, because it was yeah. kind of like a. It was a stepping away from the debates. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's interesting because because that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a ton of value to derive from that philosophy. <clears throat> it just means that Stoicism is probably a little bit more popular because it actually gives people some answers, right? Gives them something to exactly believe that could help them, right? Okay, cool. So we know that skepticism was like, you know, you don't know what what the real answer is, so why would you make a judgment about it? Um, let, let's can we move through each of the main Hellenistic philosophies, leaving Stoicism to the end, and then maybe go through how Stoicism fits in there and is influenced by the others or influenced the others, if that's if that's a question okay. that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, great. Let me try this. This is a bit of a challenge. Yeah, this is going to be so good. So the question is... <laughs> no, I don't, I don't expect you to what? know absolutely everything. So if you don't know something, it like, doesn't matter. We can move on, but, but yeah, it, it'll be fun exercise anyway. Best. So the question is, what constitutes a good life? Okay, mm. so what kind of things do you have to have to have mm. a good life? Yeah. So the, um, the Aristotelians, the Peripatetics, mm-hmm. are going to say that a good life is a combination of certain external goods and virtue, right? Mm. So you have to be a good person, but mm. you know, if you're a good person and you're like locked in a basement somewhere getting tortured it's like sorry if we had to evaluate that life it was a bad life yeah um, okay yeah so you, you have to have, you, you're a good person but things also go well for you uh, externally and mm. aristotle talks about this aristotle says look like if you're rich you can be an even better person because you can donate your money and you can start uh you know you can think of this like a philanthropist 
You yeah. get the most opportunity to be a good person if things are going well for you. So for the for the peripatetics, it was virtue plus a certain amount of external goods. Yeah. For the for the Epicureans, what constitutes a good life is pleasure. Okay. Mm. So a good life is one of maximum pleasure, minimal pain, both physically and emotionally. Mm. Physically, you do this by reducing by by living very simply. Okay. So they thought. What we need to, to, to have physical pleasure is very little. We need a little bit of food and a little bit of water. Um, so you, you achieve physical pleasure by li- living very simply. And they would say any physical pain, um, if it's long, it's bearable. But if it's very bad, it's short. You'll die soon anyway. So that, mm, that, yeah. that's, how you, that's how you don't have to worry about physical pain that much um, if you live simply in a sense. And then emotionally, you, you achieve pleasure by um, by cultivating virtue, mm. so they thought that good people um, experienced the the best emotional lives, mm. right? They felt the best about what they were doing, about how they were helping others, about their friendships. So the Epicureans thought virtue was necessary, but it w- but it was not the good. The good was pleasure, and you used virtue to get to it. Okay, mm. so the, the 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 Peripatetics two goods, right? Virtue and external goods. The yep. Epicureans only, only one good: pleasure. But mm. you achieve pleasure by being by being virtuous. Yeah, because because I think a lot of people um, misinterpret that, right? Like I think even myself included, a lot. Like you think about the Epicureans, and you think all they wanted was pleasure. So it was it was almost mm-hmm. uh, bordering on the hedonistic kind of lifestyle, right? It's like I'll just have whatever I want. But that's that's really not what they were saying, uh, essentially. Well, the confusion here is that it is hedonistic, right? Hedon mm-hmm. is the Greek word for pleasure. It was yeah. hedonistic, but it was hedonistic in the Greek sense, yeah. not hedonistic in, in our sense, yeah. um, in the modern sense. Okay. And cool. there was this argument. Um, I mean, the Epicureans just think that that if you pursue pleasure, you, you harm your friends to get pleasurable things, you're going to feel really guilty. Yeah. And your goal for pleasure is both physical pleasure but also mental pleasure, right? Yeah. So if you're a terrible person, they just thought it was a fact of our nature that you're going to feel awful about it. Mm. And then you're not going to have a pleasurable life. They say the people who feel the best about themselves are good people. Yeah. Um so it it was this pursuit of pleasure, but it was this recognition that you needed to be a good person to maximize this pleasure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Yeah. This is, this is, see, this is just bringing a lot of clarity to uh, all of these different branches of Hellenistic philosophy. And, and I think it's really good for us to continue to go through. So I think we, we, we've just got to touch on cynicism now, but then it'd be really good to see how stoicism fits within this kind of landscape. Um, Yeah. yeah, Great. Continue. I'll start with skepticism if that's okay. Um, Because sorry, we haven't done that yet. Yep. No, but they also had a more robust ethical position. And the ethical position was, it was like, what causes suffering, right? What causes mm. suffering is when we're, we're, we're attached to things. Yeah. We think, you know, oh, things are going to turn out this way and they don't. Mm. Or we think it's good if things turn out this way and they don't. I remember this, I can't remember if it's Zen or Buddhist. And it's this idea. And, you know, this guy, um, I'm trying to remember, it's a farmer. I'm not sure if you've heard this story before. And um, his horse runs away and somebody says, oh, I'm so, so sorry, your horse ran away. And, and he's like, like, they're like, that's bad. And he's like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And yeah. then the horse comes back and it brought a new horse. And they're like, wow, you have another horse. That's amazing. He goes, maybe it's good, maybe it isn't. 
And then his son's riding on the horse that got brought back, falls off, he breaks his leg. They're like, that's terrible. He goes, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, and then there's a conscription for the war and the son doesn't get conscripted because he has a broken leg. And they go, mm. well, that's amazing. And he goes, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's the skeptic position, right? Is yeah. you kind of float in this middle ground and you don't have these ups and downs that cause from being attached to like, wow, this is really good. Wow, this is really bad. Mm. Oh, my life goes well if that happens. My life goes bad if that happens. They would look at people doing Hellenistic philosophy and they'd be like, you're just putting yourself in for a world of hurt. Because you yeah. don't know the answer to this question, but you're going to attach yourself to one of these answers. Um, and so this is interesting when we go to uh, Stoicism, because Stoicism and skepticism are very similar. Because Stoic skepticism says, don't skepticism and Stoicism both say, don't believe something unless you know it's true. Mm. They both think that because Stoics are going to say the big cause of our suffering is false judgments. Yeah. And then the skeptics are going to say, and you can't know what's true. But then the yeah. Stoics are going to say, no, you can know something is true. So Stoicism has a default skeptical position that you mm. then use theory to work your way carefully out of. But yeah. default Stoicism has a lot in common with skepticism. Mm. Um, so that's what, that's really, there's, a, there's a connection there that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm, see, I'm seeing uh, so connections so we, between all of these philosophies, really. Like, yeah. and, and it almost... I, I don't I don't want to say that stoicism is is like it's it's almost like it seems to be like kind of the best of you know like like let's take the best but but because I, I don't want to say that because it, it it kind of downgrades the other philosophies but um it's interesting to see how it's influenced by by every every other philosophy well, really they, they were arguing with each other they That's were debating it. they would meet they would meet in the streets and they would they would argue about these things mm. so there's there's if there was something good, one of the schools incorporated. They're like, oh, you know, I never thought about that, but that, you know, mm. that has a lot of value, and they would incorporate it. So, perhaps Stoicism has that most the, the most incorporation. If it does, if we want to make that claim, because the Stoics were so committed to truth in this sense, they were willing to incorporate the pieces of value from everything else. Yeah. Um. I think I think historically, if we wanted to make a claim for that, we we probably could because they because Stoicism has this commitment to truth. And living in accordance with the way things are, yeah. Um, so that that would be a reason for them to incorporate the the valid points of the other schools, definitely. Um, and then, and then we get cynicism. So cynicism is very close to stoicism. Stoicism mm -hmm. is a branch of cynicism. It's an offshoot. Yeah. Um, cynicism says what is good in a good life is one that's lived in accordance with nature, mm -hmm. which sounds very familiar if you know any mm -hmm. stoicism. That's also what a good life is for stoicism. Yeah. They just think what a life in accordance with nature is, is different. So mm. for them, society corrupts us. Society makes us ignorant. It harms us. So the ideal Stoic was the one who was able to break away from society. Mm. Um, and you hear these crazy stories about Diogenes and he would, he would live in a barrel and he would uh, uh, urinate and defecate in public. And he would, and it was just this demonstration of he just, didn't care about societal norms. Hmm. He was he was just living accordance to what he took his nature to be. And cynicism comes from the Greek word for dog. So mm -hmm. he was living like a like a dog was the idea, mm -hmm. like separated from society in this way. Mm. Um, and that's that's the cynic ideal. It's a very harsh it's a very harsh philosophy. So they were they were very into very harsh physical training to unlearn these things that society has taught you and the ways that society has corrupted you. Hmm. And then, so then 
we get to stoicism. I mean, I don't know. Do we want to talk about that at all or how's... No, I yeah, mean, I, I think that's interesting, but you, you have to confirm some stories for me because I've heard some great stories about Diogenes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is it true that he, he would walk around during the daytime with a lamp and when people would ask him, you know, what are you doing? He'd be saying, I'm searching for an honest man. Like just the, yeah. the ultimate troll. <laughs> <laughs> it is this. Tro- so yeah, we have this kind of story. We have a story where, and I mean, these are as true as we can take the, yeah. they're at least reported of him. Right. I yeah. hope they are. Um, there's one where um, Alexander the Great admires him and he comes up to him and he goes, like Diogenes, um, and Diogenes is sitting on the ground and um, Alexander the Great standing in front of him. And he says, Diogenes, like, tell me what I can do for you. If I can do anything in this world, I'll do it. Diogenes like, you can get out of my light. Like, you can get out of the way because you're blocking the sun. Um, there's one with Diogenes where he's, he's, all he has is only earthly possession is this little cup. Mm-hmm. and uh, he goes down to the river and he's filling up water in this cup and drinking from it and he sees this he sees this young boy cupping his hands and drinking out of his hands and Diogenes just like throws his cup away in anger and is like man this, even this kid is a better philosopher than me because like he doesn't even need a cup um, but there was this there was this trolling the cynicism of trying to shock people out of their comfort zone and mm-hmm. out of out of this because they saw society as this corrupting force, right? As this force that caused you to be ignorant. And you thought what it was according to your nature was to sleep in a home and to have three meals a day and to care about what other people think of you. Mm. And you, you think that's your nature because it feels right when you, when you grow up being socialized in this way. Yeah. So there was this attempt to, to shock people out of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I th- I just love those stories because it, it's just so hilarious to think that he would go down with a cup and then see somebody else drinking from their hands. And like, damn it. Now I can't even use a cup. You know, it's just like, like, oh man, like, but, but when you think about it, like, man, that is, that is a difficult life to live. That's extremely difficult. And for us to even consider giving up our apartment giving up, you know, all the security, mm-hmm. giving up your job, everything, even down to a cup. Like that's, yeah. that's an extreme form of human strength if you really think about it. And it's extremely uh, inspiring as well. Like I can see why people like Alexander the Great would have gone to Diogenes to, to find out mm-hmm. what it is that allows him to get to that stage of just being so open about being on the street like that, right? And, and, and that's, the, that's the origins of Stoicism, right? Mm. The origins of Stoicism is kind of the rejection of common values. Yeah. Is kind of looking at common values and saying there's something wrong here. Mm. Um, but you don't and, have to live on the street to be a Stoic. <laughs> yeah, and I'll get, I'll, get, I'll get to that point. Yeah. Because um, that's worth developing, um, mm. the difference there. But, um, and then, but some people like Epictetus, who's the Stoic that I worked m- most with, he looks at Diogenes as the ideal. The two people that he talks about the most and references the most is Diogenes, the cynic, mm. the one, the stories we were talking about, and Socrates. Both of these people were people who threw away social convention, were considered trolls in the modern sense, but not trolls in the sense of intentionally aggravating, but there was an educational value, right? Socrates thought himself as a gadfly whose goal was to bug you out of your... Um, you know, out of your mundane, unexamined existence. Mm. So Socrates or Epictetus idealizes these people. He thinks that cynicism, Epictetus does, not all Stoics, but Epictetus thinks that cynicism is the highest calling. 
It's mm. the thing that not everyone can do. It's better than being a stoic. He's like, it's stoicism plus, yeah. right? He's like, not everybody possesses the strength to go that far. So yeah. we're just gonna do, we're gonna do stoicism. Because if you're a cynic, that's your entire life. One mm. of the nice things about stoicism, it's something that you can implement into your life. Mm-hmm. Cynicism, you can't implement into your life. It's a rejection of your life. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. So it's I love it. I yeah, know. yeah. Do you want me to get to stoicism now? Yeah, let's let's jump into stoicism. So, and and we can even continue on that idea that okay, maybe stoicism is a is a philosophy that is, uh, it's built for the masses or not for the masses. I don't want to mm-hmm. say that because there's also the interpretation that maybe stoicism is something that is only meant for a, a you know a, a smaller tight community of people on earth who 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 are able to help others, but. I see it as something that should be brought to the masses uh, because it has such value if you implement it into your life, right? Did it start off as that? Like, is that what they were trying to do? Make it easier for people to kind of get in the game? Yeah. So I'll start with I'll start with the difference between stoicism and cynicism. Yeah. Right. So cynicism thinks that life is according to a, a good life is a life according to nature, mm-hmm. um, but your nature is is almost like a like. Um, this this pursuit of uh you know just just virtue at the expense of everything else Hmm. and then stoicism thought that good life was a life in accordance with nature but you your nature was as a rational social animal yeah right so there's this social aspect that's built into stoicism that's not built Hmm. into cynicism where a good stoic is one who lives according to their nature, but they respect their nature as someone who wants to be part of a community, mm-hmm. who wants to have friends and a family, who wants to see um, political and social change and progress and these kind of things. Yeah. So this this was the break. Is it, it's more inclusive because it incorporates this social aspect. It mm. doesn't see the socialization as being necessarily corrupting um, or harmful, and that's the big break. Now, in terms of the question of is Stoicism for the masses, absolutely, right? Stoicism mm. was the first cosmopolitan philosophy. So it was the first philosophy. I mean, there's lines in Seneca where Seneca says, like, who is this person? And someone goes, he's a slave. And go, wrong, he's a human being first. Yeah. Right? It's this, there's this incredible equality that flows through Stoicism because Stoic, Stoics saw us fundamentally as rational beings. Yeah, that is what we essentially are, and that's the most important part of our identity. And that mm. identity is shared by all human beings. So, sto- stoicism is not for an for an elite few. I would say the Stoics would consider life as a philosopher mm. for for yeah. for a select few. And, and it's even it's, like select might not even be the right term there. It's it's like it's mm-hmm. uh, the life of a philosopher is for those who can handle it, right? Like and and maybe maybe like yeah. stoicism is for you know people who who just need a little bit of help in their life, you know, just to become better at whatever they're doing. Yeah. So the way the way Epictetus talks about this is Epictetus says honestly evaluate who you are, what you like to do, mm. what you're good at. I mean, there's this idea with God there, but we can we we don't need God. He says like God gave you certain talents. Yeah. You know, did He make you good socially? Did He make you um you know are, are you strong? Are you good at sports? Are you um you know are you artistically talented? Look at yeah. the skills God gave you, 
and then do those to the best of your ability. Hmm. And then the, the second part is like some people, God gave them um, just the disposition to do just philosophy. Yeah. And those people, great, they should do just philosophy. But for most people, um, you should do what you are inclined towards and what you've discovered you have kind of a talent or an affinity for. Mm. So in that sense, yeah, it, it, it's for a select few. And I, I suppose those few are lucky in a sense, yeah. but it's not like, the, it's not like the other ones are weak, right? Yeah. It's not, you're not, if you don't want to do philosophy because you don't want to read all day, um, you, you, you like, uh, you like having a, a social job or being part of a, you know, something else like that. That doesn't make you weak. It just means that you have a different disposition and a different affinity yeah. that you yeah. develop, right? And and in that sense, you still incorporate stoicism. You're not failing by mm. by not being a professional philosopher, right? Yeah, this is this is really interesting because this is incorporating so many of the things that I've been thinking about very a lot lately. It's this idea of mm -hmm. stoic. Well, let me start like this. This idea of aligning with nature, right? Just the fact that the cynics thought differently about that than the Stoics. I've really been thinking lately to get your head around that idea. There are so many offshoots of directions that you can go of live your life according to nature, right? There's so many different ways that you could live your life according to nature. And you're touching on one that I've been really thinking about lately, which is when you're born, some people just grow up and they are naturally inclined towards a certain direction, mm -hmm. right? And is it is it right to fight that? Or maybe what's happening in our modern society is because of the, you know, industrial revolution and the technological in, uh, revolution, you know, it's like we, we get into these nine to five jobs doing something that's just going to bring in the money, like... And you, you see so many people who at the end of their life, they're like, oh, I really wish I had have done that or I really wish I had have done that. And what that is, is I should have aligned with my true nature of what I was inclined towards, right? So for me, naturally, I have a talent for, for music, right? Now, that's good because it allows me to progress a little bit faster, but it's also bad because if I don't work at it, then I just stay at the same spot, right? Like I'm just, and it, I, mm -hmm. I don't feel like I need to work towards it when I really do. That would be the best thing for me. Um, but what I've come to lately is, man, I need to incorporate music into my life. I need to incorporate everything that I really love to do and figure out how I can live in this world whilst doing those things because that's what aligning with nature is, right? It's like, what are the things that I'm drawn to? Yeah, great. So this is such an interesting question. I really like Epictetus, so I turn to Epictetus in terms mm. of these. So the question is, look, live in accordance with nature. What does that mean? Also, there's yeah. different natures. There's yeah. outside nature, but then there's our nature. And Epictetus provides a hierarchy on kind of like three levels. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about this. Um, yeah, it's really cool. So there's, there is nature as in like fate, mm -hmm. right? So don't fight like the physical world. Yeah. So he even says this like, you know, if I knew I was destined to die, you know, I would like accept death, yeah. right? And we can think of this in extreme cases, but it's like if you're, you know, if you have a terminal illness, the Stoics would think, your job then is then to make the best use of the time you have. It's not to fight this illness because you're yeah. fighting against your fate in this sense. Mm. Um, and then we have our shared nature as rational beings. Mm -hmm. So first thing we do is we don't fight against fate. 
and then we never compromise our nature as rational beings. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, is we never put something above uh, virtue. Mm. So if I if I pursued um, some sort of like physical pleasure mm-hmm. um, at the risk of compromising virtue, then they would think you're being you're acting more like an animal than a rational being. Mm. You're you're not living in accordance with your nature as a rational being. And then once those two questions are aside, you're not being a bad person. You've come to terms with your fate. Then it's like you have so many other choices now. How you live, and for there. Yeah. Epictetus says we need to look to our um, our individual nature. So mm. our affinities and our dispositions, um, as you talked about, your disposition to singing um, or to, to, to music, mm. your, your affinity for, the, for these things. And then, um, then the last thing we can turn to is our acquired roles. Talk about mm. them as um, social roles. Yeah. So then the next thing we do is we consider you know, what is my nature, the nature of my relationship with other people if I'm a father or a son or a brother or a member of a community? And it's through reference to these kind of things. Um, if, we, if, we do, if, we, if we act in a way that satisfies these conditions, that's living in accordance with nature. And the Stoics think your life's going to go really, really well if you're not sacrificing or compromising mm. any of those. Mm. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's, a, that's it's a helpful way of fleshing out nature further. Yeah, and and exactly what I was saying. It's like there's so many different different things to think about, and that's why in the past it's been really difficult for me to fully grasp this idea of align with nature because it's not just mm-hmm. here's what it is. It's like here's what it is plus this plus this plus this, right? Um, and what I think mm-hmm. is really interesting is is how this idea has uh, left ripples throughout Western culture. So, for example, even just the fact that you know, you think of people as, well, they have a good nature and a bad nature, right? Like he, he acted in his best nature, like, and, and, and it's almost as if like there's, there's, um, uh, kind of a chaotic part of our nature and an, and an orderly part of our nature. Um, and we try to tend to, towards that good nature, right? Um, I said nature way too many times there. But then um, <laughs> even when people say, um, oh, it's just, it's just not in my nature to, to do this, you know, like we don't think of that as I'm aligning with nature, but that's what aligning with nature is. You think oh, it's just not within my nature to, to be an accountant you know, <laughs> or to, to be <laughs> a musician. I just I have no tendency towards that, right? So it's, it's cool how it has left ripples. Um, but, but in terms of the, the fate side of things, is that essentially saying things that are happening to us, right? Is that is that like coming to terms with just whatever happens as in it's going to happen and you have to be able to accept that, right? Yeah, so there's still room. Um, so, so fate is like this really difficult issue in stoicism. Mm. Um, they were determinists. So that means that they think they think that life is fated to occur in mm. a certain way, and they had a this kind of when people hear this they kind of think well if it's the what's the point in doing anything right if it's deterministic mm. things are going to happen the way they're going to happen, um, and there's entire there's entire Stoic books arguing against this that that knowing things are fated doesn't give us a reason to not still be motivated mm. and that's an interesting question, um, but in terms of this. We have to understand that we stand in a certain um, knowledge position, a flawed knowledge position, 
where we don't know what's going to happen to us, mm. right? So be, the, the, the answer is if I knew what was going to happen to me, and that's why I tried to use the example of a terminal illness where mm. you know you're gonna die. Um, but if I, if I knew, or for example, we know we're gonna die. We don't know when, but we know yeah. we're gonna die. Yeah. So it, anything that you know is going to happen to you, mm. you, have to come to, you have to come to terms with. Yeah. Right. And, and acknowledge this and not fight against this. Everything else, we still have a capacity um, to attempt to influence it and navigate that. Mm. But once we have failed to influence it, so I try to stop something from happening, but then it happens. Now it has happened. Now it's yeah. a part of the things that have happened to me. I no longer have that capacity to influence yeah. it. And then that becomes part of I know that that was my fate now. I know that that was what was going to happen to mm. me. And then I have to come to terms with it. So the idea is come to terms with what you know must be the case. That means everything in your past and certain things in the future, like the fact that you're going to die. Mm. Like the fact that, you know, some people are ignorant and ignorant people are going to do ignorant, harmful, mean things. Yeah. Um, like the fact that you're not going to be perfect and sometimes you're going to fail in the future. Mm-hmm. Certain things you know are going to happen, you have to come to terms with. Um, just just to put yourself in, in, in line with that nature, with the, those facts of the world. Mm. Um, but this is it. It's like if, if we knew what we were going to do, we could just be like, oh, if we knew what was going to happen, we could, we could come to peace with it. But because we don't know, we're still trying our best to influence it. But once we know how it's going to ha- happen or what has happened, then, then we come to terms with, with that fact of the world. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. So it, it's kind of breaking it down into uh, two knowledges. It's it's a knowledge of uh, what will definitely happen, right? So you have to come to mm-hmm. terms with that. And it's a knowledge of the things that have happened that are now outside of your control, right? And so you wouldn't mm-hmm. tell somebody, well, you shouldn't set goals for the future because, uh, you know, like, you know, like, because like, you just, you can't control your fate. Like, yeah, set goals, but along the way to achieving them, you need to accept what happens and navigate around it. Right. Um, so in that sense, yeah, it's deterministic, but it's also, it leaves room for exploration and for, uh, at least some, some set of direction. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we're kind of seeing this life, unfolds right because the 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 stoics are uh, materialist they think everything Mm. is matter and matter follows physical rules so matter is just interacting with each other and it's going to enter and if we knew how to predict matter we could predict what would happen yeah but we're not perfect at that yet so we can't predict Mm. um but we're kind of participating in a discovery of our own fate we're kind of participating and seeing how things turn out. Mm. I don't find that demotivating at all. Um, yeah, and it certainly not. doesn't discourage you. It doesn't discourage you from trying, right? Mm. Because perhaps your fate was to try really hard and succeed. Perhaps your fate was to try really hard and fail. Um, neither of those two, the fact that one of those is going to occur mm. because matter is just interacting in a certain way um, shouldn't prevent you from, you know, setting yourself towards the preferable one Mm. um it's just not it's just not thinking if we're setting goals it's just not thinking that my life only goes well if that goal is achieved yeah right yeah um my life your life goes well if you if you 
adapt in accordance with what is occurring. If you if mm. you're living in accordance with that nature, your life doesn't go well just by achieving those goals. Yeah. Um, but then part of your, part of your nature is as a goal setting animal or creature. So you, you know you're denying something very human if you entirely suppress um, you know these kind of intuitions or or aims. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And and I. I, before I forget about it, I have to duck back to something that you said earlier, and then maybe once we've answered this, we'll uh, wrap it up with you know some sort of um, I guess uh, an explanation of a few of the other ways that Stoicism has uh, taken from the other Hellenistic philosophies or added to them, right? Um, sure. But I wanted you to define what you meant by, uh, or not what you meant, but what the Stoics meant and what uh, the Hellenistic philosophers meant by God, right? Because it's not the same as in us in our Western culture today of Christianity. It's not the same God, right? It's, it's, do you know what they kind of defined it at or, or what the original word was? So the original word is theos, yeah. uh, which is where we get theo- theology. Okay. So theology is the study of theos. It's the study of God mm-hmm. or gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the difference between theos and daimon. Daimon is these kind mm-hmm. of spirits and theos is, is God. Now, well, this like Hellenistic theology is a whole different, you know, that's a whole different mm-hmm. ball game. But I can give you some, I can give you some pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, the Epicurean picture of God, I know this was one in which God was very um, uninvolved. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't concern itself too much with our fates. Um, and, and, and along these lines, so, so the, the Epicureans thought, because in, in uh, contemporary Greek society, you had very much this idea of, um, I don't know, Christianity, Christianity kind of takes this on with saints. Mm-hmm. You had different gods that filled different roles, right? You think of all these different Greek gods, would be the god of war, the god of mm. commerce, the god of travel, the god of partying. And you'd kind of look for blessings from that god if you wanted to fare well in one of these mm. And the Epicureans thought that that caused us a lot of stress and a lot of suffering because we were, we, they were constantly sacrificing to the gods and thinking, oh, the gods have, have cursed me or looking down on me. Mm. And the Epicureans kind of took this position of like, the gods are not really that concerned with your fate. Yeah. Um, you know, perfect, perfect beings aren't going to be, you know, mad at you. Mm. Um, so that was, that was a way to kind of reduce a lot of the emotional stress they thought regular Greek people felt with this obsession with making the gods happy. Hmm. So Epicureans had this really like removed conception of God. Um, and then for the, for the Stoics, we get a God that looks almost Christian, but we have to be careful. So with the Greeks, we had many different gods, each for different, for different reasons, right? Hmm. Zeus or, you know, Poseidon or things like this. And so for the Stoics, you had one, you had one God. Or mm. something in which they refer to as God. Now, you, you want to be careful. So in, in, in Christianity, this God is anthropomorphized. So this God has um, a specific kind of will and can become angry and can, can mm. punish and so on and so forth. And can have a, can have a child, can have a, can have mm. a son. Um, in Stoicism, God was identified with, with reason, with the divine principle mm. that inhabited all things. And caused um, motion um, and order and structure. Mm. So they thought they were materialistic. So everything was matter. Even God was matter. 
Mm-hmm. This is an important distinction from Christianity. But if you just have matter, matter is inert. So mm-hmm. you need some sort of principle that gives it motion, gives it structure and form. Um, and for them, they thought that this inert matter was combined with this divine principle everywhere. So there's mm-hmm. divine principle in every. And what that divine principle does is it um, maintains the form of that thing. So the, 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 there's, there's a little bit of logos or intelligence or divinity in a rock, and that's mm-hmm. what keeps a rock shaped. That's what stops it from falling apart and disintegrating. Yeah. There's divinity of a different form. So there's a divinity of the same form, or sorry, of a little bit different form in plants, and that's mm. what causes them to grow. So a rock just is just the same. You have a different type of divinity in plants that causes them to grow. And then you have a, 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 an even more refined type of divinity in animals, and that gives them a basic type of intelligence. And then you have the highest type of divinity, self-reflective mm. intelligence only in humans. So humans have, Epictetus talks about this all, all the time, we have a piece of God within us. Mm. Our self-reflective capacity is the highest form of, of, of divine intelligence. Mm. Um, so, so, just to summarize with that, in the Stoic God, there's, only, there's, there's one, but it doesn't stand outside the world. It permeates everything. Yeah. It provides motion and form. It mm-hmm. gives everything the structure and form that it has. Um, and then it takes different forms. It takes forms in rocks, plants, animals, and then it takes its highest form in humans. Hmm. Um, so it's a very different understanding of God. It's very interesting. And, and that's yeah. why for them, living in accordance with nature, a God was nature, yeah. right? So it's living in accordance with God because yeah. God doesn't stand outside it. He's not transcendental is the term people would use. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I think that's giving me a lot and hopefully the the listeners as well, like a lot of clarity on the way that the Stoics saw, um, yeah, that, that kind of metaphysical side of, of, of what we all try to think about. Right. And, and that's a really great definition of like, it's not outside of us and it's not outside of the world. It is a part of everything. Right. Um, and you know, whether you believe that or not, it's like it, it's, it's also interesting to, for me, like I always try to look at nature and see what I can learn about myself as a result of looking at the patterns in nature, right? And, and, and if you think about it like that, people always talk about how like cities in, in some ways mimic mm-hmm. nature and, and how um, if you look at the humanity as a whole and how it moves around and fights and then makes peace and everything, it's, it's like, man, like we are so much more a part of nature than what anybody really understands, right? And we're only just starting to fully understand that. Well, I might be going a bit outside my, my depth here, but you get this idea of Christianity, you get this Christian idea of us being, um, and, and, and not to say this is the only way you could take Christianity, but there's a way of looking at Christianity of saying, like, look, we're different from everything else. Um, there's God, and then there's mm. us in God's image, and then there's the rest of the world which was made um, to benefit us or to serve mm. us. And for the Stoics, it's like God is in everything, um, and we are just different manifestations of that mm. energy. Some of it is, is more complex and more intelligent and more mm. reasonable. Like our minds are more um, more complex than in animals or something along these lines, but we're all filled with the same principle and the same form. Mm. I guess I suppose you get the Holy Spirit in Christianity to kind of take up that space. Mm. But uh, I think a lot of the differences come from this kind of Christian influence because Stoicism was pre-Christianity, and that's why it can it can really be counterintuitive in a lot of these ways. Mm. I mean, we were talking 
we were talking about nature that goes against my nature and things like this. And you think of Christianity kind of um, brings in this picture of us having a sinful nature. So yeah. I was having a nature that is flawed that we're trying to um, repent for and do our best, but we'll never succeed. Mm. Right. Whereas stoicism doesn't have that. We're not uh, essentially sinful in nature. We're essentially mm. rational in nature. So the, the Stoics look at us like we're, we're sick. We have a disease. They use this metaphor all the time. We have to cure the disease. But yeah. healthy us is, is just normal us. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a real paradigm shift when you're doing Hellenistic philosophy because most moral education, I think, comes from Judeo-Christian values. So mm. now we're getting this moral education that is, is certainly – they certainly have influenced one another, but they're separate also. Mm. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, no, it is really interesting. I, I just really appreciate you talking about this so much because uh, we started with Hel Hellenistic philosophy. And now we've made our way all the yeah. way down to the definition of Stoic God, you know, and and, and I think um, it's just one of those areas that people tend to gloss over it really quickly. It's like, well, they talked about God, but we don't need to focus on that because God's not real. It's like, well, hang on, like this could be a really important aspect of the philosophy that helps us to understand even more about like how it can help us, right? Like there's that it, mm -hmm. it could have been extremely important that the Stoics even talked about this, right? So, um, yeah, I really appreciate that. But, um, okay, getting back into uh, to the connections, is there anything else you yes. want to say about how Stoicism is connected through the other philosophies in, in Hellenism? So one thing that I want to think that I, when I see most people engaging in modern Stoicism, I think the biggest mistake I see is most people are actually Epicureans. Mm -hmm. So maybe not most, but a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people say, look, a good life is to be happy, which me they mean to feel good. Mm -hmm. They say, I want to feel good. Stoicism makes me feel good. Mm. There's nothing wrong with this. But just you'll, 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 serve, you'll, you'll serve yourself a lot better if you recognize that you're an Epicurean. You think mm. that a good life is, is, is one of pleasure. pleasure. It's one of yeah. reduced mental suffering. Mm. And you see stoicism as the way to achieve that. There's nothing mm. wrong with that. But I, I, I would love to see more people make that distinction. Ask yourself what comes first. Does pleasure come first or does mm. virtue come first? Yeah. Right? Um, and if, if, if are you doing – are you practicing stoicism because it makes you feel good or because you want to be a good person? And those are separate, they're, they're interrelated, but those are separate ends. Mm -hmm. And um, I, think, I think the modern Stoics would be helped by pulling those apart a little further. Um, and then other things in terms of influence, I talked about the influence between skepticism and Stoicism. Skepticism and Stoicism are the exact same in terms of we should not believe something unless we know it to be true. Mm -hmm. The skeptics just go, we can't know anything to be true, yeah. so forget it. And the Stoics go, well, we know we, we, we can know some things to be true. Yeah. And we can move cautiously from those principles. Like we can know um, you know, virtue is good. We can mm. know vice is bad. We can move cautiously from there. Um, so that's th those things are not as different as you might suspect. And I think a kind of default stoic position for those just beginning, most stoics that are beginning should be more skeptical. Mm. Epictetus says when he talks about the progress of, of a stoic, he says, you should actually become agnostic about um, about what is good and bad. Mm. If you try to navigate stoicism with your current commitments, you're going to fail. You have to like take a step back and say, okay, I totally forget everything I think about what's good and bad. And mm -hmm. then you kind of reevaluate your life and recategorize. 
So, mm. so there's, there's that. I think there's more skepticism and stoicism than people acknowledge. Um, the other thing is between Aristotelianism or, or the peripatetics and stoicism comes down to what you think your essential nature is. So do you think your essential nature is of a rational being? Or mm. do you think you are a intelligent animal who also has physical needs and physical desires that need to be satisfied in order mm. to live well? This is Cicero's objection in the book On Ends. He, he, he argues against Stoicism on this place. He goes, look, I, I, Stoicism, I totally get your argument, but, but why are you identifying yourself as just a rational animal? Why mm. not all of these parts of your identity? Why, why, why not identify yourself with your physical body as well and mm. recognize that if I don't have enough food to eat or I don't have shelter, I'm being harmed? Why just this reduction to your, cho to your choice in your mind? Hmm. Um, so I think people need to, well, it could, people could be served better by thinking about that question. What do they think they essentially are? Do they think they're essentially their choosing capacity, their mind, their reason, or do they think they're, uh, an animal that is also very intelligent and thus a good life has to satisfy both aspects of being. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, that I think is a, is a really good way. That's, I'm sorry, that's my best attempt to frame this interaction Hellenistic philosophy mm. and stoicism yeah I love it and honestly there's like so many more questions that we could get into but I think that what yeah, you've done cool. is give us a really really good overview of how stoic like I'm very very excited about this episode because it, it, it just clarifies so much for me and and, mm -hmm. and I know that if it clarifies a lot for me it's going to clarify a lot for the listeners um, and and I think that that you make a good point there like really trying to think about which school you currently fit into aside from the fact that you say oh, i'm a stoic or like i uh, live a stoic lifestyle really take a look at each of these philosophies and you might actually fit into um an, another one you know e even better um and yeah I, I as i said there's so much more that i want to talk about i'm gonna to have to end it here because i think this is a really good place to end the episode and uh yeah michael Great. we're gonna have many 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 more conversations um because this has just been an absolute pleasure I like your knowledge is is really like, i'm really grateful for it so thanks so much for coming on yeah thanks for having me it's always a pleasure yeah definitely and i'll, I'll provide links to where everyone can find you i know we we're going to talk about your brazilian jiu-jitsu as well um but we can save that for another time as well but um yeah, great. is there anything else that you want to share with the audience before we uh we, we head off yeah so like um I might have mentioned this last time, I think, but this helpfully applies here is, is Marcus Aurelius talks about how it's, it's the truth he's after. If mm. you can show he's wrong, he'll gladly accept it. And um, man, just living an examined life is so mm. valuable. Anybody watching this podcast or watching this, this video and engaging in these questions, I'm so happy because we're all so much better off for being examined and being intentional. And I don't really think there's a right answer in that sense. Um, at least not a right answer that's easily come by. It's not like any of these schools yeah. are right and the other ones are wrong, obviously. Mm. But just engaging in this process of intentional living is so valuable. Um, but if you came to this process through Stoicism, I love Stoicism. I, I think I follow the mm. Stoic camp. But don't uh, don't become a, uh, a dogmatic yeah. party follower. As you talked about, take your time to dip your toes. And at the very least, 
just like Stoicism took something of value from those other schools, maybe you're still a Stoic, but you take something of value from them too, mm. right? Yeah, as as all of the Stoics have done, as Seneca did, you know, he would often exactly. quote, uh, you know, Epicurus and and say, look, talks, it, just because they're outside of our philosophy doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn from them. Like, it's almost as if we should actively be trying to see what they're saying as if we're kind yes. of watching the enemy. It's like, okay, what are they doing? Oh, you know, like, you know it's kind of like, like, okay, I'm going to take that because that's really good, but I'm going to leave the rest, you know? So yeah, there's, yeah. there's definitely, I, I really great. like that. And I think that's important for people to know that you don't have to jump into this and be like, I'm a stoic. I'm going to do that. And you know, I've been, I've done that a lot in the past, you know, and I'm trying to get away from that. I'm trying to, to look at this as just a set of really valuable tools if they work exactly. that I can use in my exactly. life. So um, awesome. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. All right. So there you have it. My interview with Michael Tremblay and, uh, guys, I'm going to put all of the links to where you can find Michael online in the show notes. And as I always say, make sure you reach out to, to Michael and, you know, share with him how much value he gave you in this interview and let him know how much you appreciate him spending his time with us to come on here and share all this information. Uh, and do that with all of the guests because it's 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 such a privilege that we get to have them on this show and listen to them and, and really pick their brain even just for an hour. Uh, but uh, Michael, absolutely loved that conversation. I want to have many, many more. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody, I'll talk to you next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J.E. Drew. See you next time.